Welcome to Fully Yours, a podcast about food, the sacred, and ordinary moments of extraordinary belonging. Hi there, my name is Chloe, and I'm so grateful that you're joining us for this episode of Fully Yours. Together with Eva and Christy, co-hosts on the show, we work to bring together voices of people working at the intersection of food and spirituality. And this season, we're focusing on our unique regions where we find ourselves. Um, Christy in the Northeast, Eva in Arkansas, and myself out on the West Coast. On this episode, it is truly my delight to be introducing Ruby Diane. I first heard Ruby um, a few months ago as a guest speaker for one of the classes I was taking, and I was struck by her creativity and just her genuine spirit. And Ruby, among many things, is a farmer and also the founder of First Mother Farms. I'm really glad that you're here for this conversation. Thanks so much. I'm here with Ruby Diane. Ruby, thank you so much for taking time to meet with me tonight. We're sitting in a coffee shop, so you'll probably be hearing some um, some noises in the background of, of holiday music and also of um, people and having conversations. Ruby, um, I just wanted to begin this evening by asking you a little bit more about your story. So I first met you in a community business um, development program, and it's it was a pilot program designed for folks who are passionate and have um, ideas about food-based businesses and um, who maybe are, are taking their very first steps to pursue those those dreams and you were one of our guest speakers and you came in and I just remember you spoke with such passion and integrity and um, really deeply touched me and I think everyone in the room was really moved. Um, You shared a little bit about your personal journey and also this dream that you have for for your own sense of of work around food and farming and and the deep meaning that that brings you, um, the vision that you have for helping others uh, through farming. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit if you could share about that and also um, maybe as much as you'd like to share about kind of the experiences that that have brought you to this chapter of your life. Farming has always been a part of my life. and, but it's always been something that I guess you take it for granted because it's always there. And so, you know, my family has a story of, you know, my great grandparents jumping trains at 16, you know, to make it west um, to start their life in California. And they ended up landing in Southern California. And my great grandfather, you know, worked as a ranch hand um, for n- a number of different farms and ranches from turkeys to avocados to you know oranges or the mixture of mm-hmm. such and so uh, they had seven kids you know my respective grandmother and uncles and aunts and everything and they all bring this farming knowledge right I mean they grew up around this environment and um, of course I think everybody just kind of has it in them it's a it's kind of something that you do and 
Um, you know, when you look at land or you look at houses or you drive through communities, you're thinking about the land and what you could do with it. And um, it's just something that was just intrinsic and nothing that I really thought about as a career until, um, you know, I was going through college. And of course, you know, with farming and ranching kind of in the back of my mind, you think about, um, you think about food and the land and raising animals and like you just find it interesting and so it always made me gravitate towards the environment and so when I was in college um, I ended up getting involved in student government and they didn't have an environmental affairs person they didn't have a school garden you know these are all things of course me being me I'm like where is it you know are we recycling or what are we doing with our paper you know um And for whatever reason, it interests me to have those conversations. And so, yeah, I was that kid um, in college in front of, you know, the board of the trustees saying, you know, we should have a plan around reducing our usage for office supplies and there should be a recycling can in every classroom, you know, and to them, you know, it seems trivial. It really does. But in my mind... It's not trivial, and I think to me, I really like just the challenge maybe of being intentional about those things, and also personally, I just like the challenge of using less. Um, And so I think those things combined has always been themes, but maybe I didn't really spend a lot of time thinking how important they really were to me. It was just something that I just did. Um, And then that just kind of evolved to... um, getting more involved in local government, being interested in the challenges around um, what are we going to do with all these vacant lots? You know, what are we going to do with houses that are blighted? What are we going to do about homes, you know, communities that are being gentrified? And we have all these, um, you know, we have all these residents and we also have all these absentee homeowners that, you know, these are corporations that own this land that live in Canada or China or whatever, and they're not really providing any value to the community. So from college, I jumped into um, Council Member Jay Chenier's office. He's the representative for District 5, Oak Park. We're in Oak Park right now. Woo! Um, and we are really thinking about all these different things, right? Like, And he was the only one on the council that was really asking those questions and when I was in college I saw him at a community event and I was like I want to work for that guy you know (laughs) because he was doing he was actually applying systems and social change and um and taking on interesting projects um and the gap that I saw there um you know we had community members in Oak Park who were interested in starting community gardens they wanted an urban ag ordinance they wanted to be able to keep goats in their backyard you know chickens um all the things and you know in West Sac they don't have that problem because they could just farm by right it's considered an egg community right Sacramento because we're incorporated and we're a city you know we're not allowing for it and we didn't allow for the sell of your produce in your from your backyard or from your front yard so it was a big deal to pass the urban egg ordinance and say okay you could farm it in your in your front yard <laughs> and in your backyard and you could sell it in your front yard <laughs> you know that that's a simp- that's you know it's like 20 pages long yeah. but that's the that's the short version yeah. um 
and people were already doing that, but they wanted to do it legally. But I, I kind of like the rub there because I think do it anyway, right? I mean, governments don't have the capacity to regulate half the stuff that they hold over us, right? So if it's doing good, do it, you know? Why does there have to be an ordinance to give you permission to grow food? It blows my mind. It really makes you think about what the choices we make as a society. So all of that, food, um, human rights, um, you know, intrinsic right, you know, um, liberty, to me, it, food is that, right? It could intersect with all these things. Um, and for me, that's why it's so exciting and so meaty because it's like I might have a meal with you or I might be gar community gardening side by side with you, but it really opens all these doors for all these other things because it's innate to everything that we do. Um, so if we start there, um, I think it just opens all these amazing conversations and doors and challenges. Um, and so I think when you pick that as a thing, right, <laughs> food as a thing, farming as a thing that you're going to take up, um, it just keeps going. And so what I find myself doing is allowing food and farming to be the space, a lifelong project, right? If, if, if my goal isn't to make money per se, right, but to create value and lean into caring for the the earth and being a steward of the planet what does that look like and if I do that over time what projects can I manifest from that um, and so I've really just taken that experimental approach to first mother farms to where I don't hold my I do have a business plan okay I have financial goals but they're not much and it's not gonna make or break what I do um, and I'm in it for the long run and so I think when you decide that that's your mindset, I'm just willing to just try different things. And so, you know, even though I've been doing First from Mother Farms, I think this, is, this next year will be my fifth year, I've gone through so many iterations. I've gone through so many different business models. I've farmed so many different pieces of land, you know? Um, and we do, my sister does own some property, but it's a challenge for me to be there consistently. And that's a long-term project in itself. So it's just one of those things that, um, what really stuck with me when I went through the Center for Land-Based Learning Farmer Training Program. Um, and I think it was uh, Michael Madison, I think. Um, He's a local farmer in Davis, and he has this, like, very zen approach to farming because <laughs> he's like, I got 13 acres, but I don't farm all of them, and when things get ripe, I just hit a tree, you know, and I'm like, all right on. <laughs> um, I want to be like you when I grow up. <laughs> um, because one of the things that he said, he said, farm, farm what you love and farm where you are, right? So, you know, if you have an apartment, farm there, right? If um, if you have a backyard, farm there, you know? And I think having that mindset around identifying myself as a farmer is an important aspect of how I choose to spend my free time. Um, and if I didn't have, if I didn't choose to accept the identity as a farmer, then I would not make time for farming. So it's very similar to being any kind of artist or writer, right? If you don't assume that as a part of your identity, when do you think about it? So I think 
in the beginning, the first two years, it was really important for me to actually come out <laughs> as a farmer, right? Like I had been personally, secretly cultivating this love for farming and food and volunteering on farms, visiting farms, going through training programs, you know, volunteering at Canoke's farm, you know, here in Oak Park and things like that, having mentors. But I, w- I didn't say I was a farmer. And I think finally, and I was like, all right, you know, Ruby has to say that she's a farmer. It's holding me to my dreams and my aspirations and saying that I, too, am going to take responsibility mm-hmm. as a farmer. Mm-hmm. And what does that what does that mean and look like for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think other I think one of the things that I think about in terms of success of First Mother Farms and why I call it First Mother Farms, because <laughs> I don't have farms, but I think about farms as people and what they do right mm-hmm. and if if i can encourage other closet you know tinkerers that are actually farmers to assume the identity of farmer that's a farm you know mm-hmm. and so that kind of makes me excited and when i started um doing my products and experimenting with that stuff you know, I asked for feedback from the folks that were buying the products and what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it, if it smelled too strong, whatever. And, you know, the feedback that I got from them is they talked more about buy- purchasing the product because it gave them r- the reminder to have space in their life, right? Like, now that I bought this bomb and, you know, I get your newsletter and I see your videos or I see what you're doing. You are, you are a reminder to take a break, right? Mm-hmm. And so to me, I'm like, well, I don't have to sell a bomb to do that, mm-hmm. which, you know, from a business model maybe doesn't make much sense, <laughs> but that's okay, you know? It's more about, it's more about, I don't know, the philosophy, leading into the philosophy of inspiration rather than I want to be super duper tied to selling lavender bombs, you know, as a business. You know, and when you look at Instagram, it could be very discouraging because there's a bomb for everything now. Um, so that's not why I, I do bombs, right? It's more of a conversation and a reminder and an opportunity to continue to lean into farming and experiment. So, you know, nothing is, nothing is linear, um, but there's themes that I always come back to. And, and that theme of farming and rest is really huge and you know it may be counterintuitive to think of as farming restful because mm-hmm. it is very labor intensive but I definitely um, I experience a state of present present being totally present um, and that flow and meditation while farming if you are choosing to bring that type of attention in your mind to your work mm-hmm. that's what it is for me so mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I'm not so much tied to um, the other, you know, the monetary benefit. It's not necessarily about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so on, on our last episode, we were just talking about a book called The Dreamt Land that um, me and Christy, one of the co-hosts, recently read. And it's talking about water use in California and um, just describes several different types of farms, right? Because they're, there's very many different models of farming. Um, and I imagine the type of farming that you describe um, 
which resonates so, so deeply with my heart. I imagine that it's not maybe what's found on many farms. Um, and I don't know, has that been your experience as you went through the Center for Land-Based Learning program and got to just immerse yourself in different farms and then also kind of grappling with um, farming and maybe when farming is used as a means of, you know, to for farmers to financially sustain them, uh, support themselves, um, that tension that maybe could arise um, when they're trying to farm um, on larger and larger scale. Can you just talk about some of those nuances and um, where you've seen, I guess, where you've seen models that have inspired your own understanding of farming and then where you've maybe seen models that helped you differentiate what you wanted to create and bring into this world? Yeah. So obviously this is a huge, I mean, it's going to be one of the greatest challenges of our generation for the next 50 years, the next 100 years, right? Um, Because of climate change, lack of resources, growing population, right? We're going to see the real pains of not being able to produce enough food for people um, given our growth, right? And what's interesting is that our drive to technology and healthcare and medicine is also making the population stick around longer, right? So we're almost creating our own problems, right? That yes, we yes, we're saying yes to taking better care of people and living longer, but that also means the capacity that we have in this planet to sustain that is being diminished. Yeah. And it's been being diminished for a long time. So what I think is what we shouldn't do is we shouldn't demonize big farms. And right now we're demonizing big farms, right? Because, you know, we got the Food Inc. and we got, you know, Monsanto and all these other things, right? Um, America was built on farms. We've branded ourselves, aside from being warmongers, <laughs> you know, um, we branded ourselves on being the breadbasket of the world right which was also driven by our industrial war war complex Mm -hmm. that because we were out there fighting these wars it created our own labor shortage here on our own soil which means we started creating more machines to cultivate in order to not only feed our sustenance need but also to feed the sustenance need of the rest of the world because we had built this model on exportation where our agriculture business is built on exporting which you know people want to here in Sacramento this is old data but six years ago I think now you know only six percent of the food grown in the Sacramento region is actually consumed here right and we branded ourselves what the farm to fork capital (laughs) okay we only eat six percent of our own food people what that shows you is we built a model based on exportation. So my mind thinks it isn't necessarily big ag that's the problem, right? We need big farms to feed a lot of people. The methods on how we cultivate that land needs to change, number one, because you're pretty much farming in soil that doesn't have its own ecosystem anymore. What what big farming does is it kills the soil and you pretty much just, it's a big petri dish where you insert all the elements and components that you need and nutrients year after year after year without allowing the soil, the natural ecology of the environment to do it, right? So that needs to change. We also need to change how we value 
food and where that food goes. So if everyone took a more intrinsic look in an internal look, not necessarily intrinsic, but it's kind of the same. But if we looked at made an internal look on farming and said, we are going to value food systems that distribute food locally, that we're not going to, we're going to make the transition to not be an export model, but we're going to be an import model, meaning we're not going to export and we are going to distribute the food that we grow here as closely as possible to the source. And if we started to ask those types of questions and if we leveraged government and policies and things like that to actually incentivize farmers to do that, they would do it because it's always been about market demand and it's always been about economy, right? So you could make money being a large-scale farmer growing subsistence crops like corn and soy and all that to pretty much create grain for cows to eat. You could do that. But if we flipped it on its head and we said, okay, over the next 100 years, we want to transition back to we are going to measure our success by how little we export and we're going to invest money on that, I would really like to see what that food system looks like. Because one of the reasons why we have a lot of the global malnutrition that we have is because we have taken the power of those native people who live there and told them that they're only going to farm one thing. To what? Export. That's not farming. Farming is a system. And they would, by all means, grow their own food and probably work more intelligently on that land if they were not essentially in slave, institutionalized slavery in pretty much saying we're going to provide you a stipend to live on this land that your gener generations of people have already lived on. And yes, you get to eat some of your food, but you're going to live on a shack on this property and we're going to come annually at harvest and take everything that you grew over this past season and we're going to export it and pay you pennies on the dollar for it. Not fair. And that system is a holdover of imperialism and slavery. And call name it anything you want to name it we love to put new labels on things but call it what it is and recognize it for what it is it is a holdover from slavery so if you want to actually systemically and globally get serious about changing things you change the logistics and you change the value set around why it is we are farming and why we are exporting at the at the rate that we are because right now the other thing, too, is there's no, there isn't a food shortage. There is a lack of logistics around getting food to places in the appropriate time. But why are my tomatoes here in Sacramento being harvested and then shipped, you know, across the state or, up, or upstate? Um, those questions, and I think necessity, sadly, is what's going to, to force us to make those changes. But I think smart governments, if they wanted to take on the challenge, could, as a preemptive measure, say, we want to fund programs that accomplish XYZ, which means, you know, more internal distribution, supporting the development of, you know, creating localized distribution hubs, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and they could also say, 
how about we reimburse you for a period of time for miles not traveled, mm-hmm. right? And that kind of that kind of blows your mind a little bit, right? Yeah. But it's a way to, in the economy, shift what we are actually valuing. And right now, like it or not, we have built a capitalist economy. A capitalist economy is measured by monetary flow, okay? If we're not going to get rid of that overnight, then just change how the money flows. And you can change how the money flows by experimenting with some of these things. So I would really like to see governments and organizations do this, but I really think private sector and technology and some of those thought groups, they would have to come together to be willing to pilot some things like this. Mm -hmm. Um, You get the, you know, that's how I see Big Ag and the the opportunity there, Mm -hmm. which is small, it's community focused, Mm -hmm. um, but it can be duplicated in a larger system, right? Um, And that's why I think the more people who identify themselves as farmers is important (laughs) because you think about your resources differently. Your mindset is different. A farmer is a systems thinker. You have to be strategic about your time, your body, what inputs you have, what you get for free, what you pay for, when you pay for it, when you plant, when you don't plant, if you till things, Um, what implements you use on your farm. All of those things when you look at that as a farming system, can also be duplicated in other places, right? Mm So one of my old bosses, um, and I think he stole it from someone else, he said that, you know, um, a developer is just a farmer who's knocked the dirt off his boots, or her boots, let's just say her boots, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I believe this because, you know, your farming mindset can be translated into so many other things that it is important that that scale of farming and that mentality can be duplicated. Mm-hmm. Um, my farming philosophy comes from the fact of asking myself questions like, what do I want to spend my day doing? Mm-hmm. What do I want to wake up and do? Mm-hmm. In Ruby's ideal world, Ruby wants to wake up and have a beautiful landscape to wake up to, right? Yeah. Chickens, animals, the smells, the sounds of a farm. I like that. I want that. So that's something that I want. Um, do I want to spend time on a tractor? Personally, no, I don't. Um, so no, I don't want a tractor, which means I don't want a lot of land because I don't need a tractor. Um, do I want to hire people to do the work? No, I don't want to hire people to do the work because I want it to be for me and my family to enjoy. Okay, that answers the question. Um, do I want to spend my weekends at a farmer's market? No. I don't want to spend my weekends on a farmer's market. Maybe every once in a while. Do I want to do it every single weekend? No, I don't. Um, Would I want to, um, you know, sell wholesale, you know, which means I would need a a large volume of one thing? Not really, because I don't want to just grow one thing. Well, what do I want to plant and why do I want to plant it? Okay, I want to plant things that I enjoy, that I love to eat, that I don't have to care if it's going to do well on the market or not do well on the market. And when you ask yourself those questions, your motivations, what your interests are, if this is something that is going to be a lifestyle choice, I'm looking at the next 70 years of my life, right? Do I want to be a farmer who dies on the tractor at 75 years old? No, I don't, but I would like to die in a beautiful landscape that I created, right? So 
that means I'm a small scale farmer, right? I'm not, you know, I'm not poo-pooing on some other person's grand visions of being a large scale farmer because so what? She's out there, but that's not me. And that's totally fine. Um, but I also love to think about how can my voice as identifying as a farmer help large-scale farms because I'm not a proponent of getting rid of them because, well, when you say that, because, you know, advocates want to get all crazy about Monsanto, well, how would we feed the world? That's how I respond to that question. How would we feed the world? Because right now we don't have enough people who identify as farmers. And one thing that our Americanized community and, and mindset can take from places like Canada or Africa or Europe or these smaller communities or that have not um, pretty much given up their traditional ways, they still farm. You know, I have a Greek uncle. His, he has a small backyard. I mean, maybe a quarter of an acre. Not a lot of grass. But he's got olive trees. He's got lemon trees. He's got orange trees. He's got a little garden. You know, th- their salad, their dinner salad, they eat from the garden, right? Their garlic is their garlic. Their olive oil is their table olive oil, right? So you don't need much. But, you know, and the thing that's funny, too, is, like, he builds um, data processing systems, right? So he's a farmer. And his mindset applied to what he does is so impactful. Um, So that, to me, that intentionality and care and that stewardship ties into civility, consciousness, bringing citrus to your neighbor, bringing bread to your neighbor. When you do those types of things, now you, you don't see yourself as separate. And I think right now we've been spending a lot of time seeing ourselves as separate, which is not helpful um, at all and is not gonna help us solve huge problems. And what I like to think about is we got a lot of crazy big problems to solve. And that's exciting. It can be exciting. Yes, it's challenging and daunting and scary, but it's also very exciting and a very unique opportunity to make something of it. And you don't get a second go, you don't get a second pass. So, you know, lean into it and see what you could do. So to me, that's why it's the 70 year projection of the personal farm, because my personal farm should change and evolve as my skills and interests and cha- as I change and where I live. So um, one of the, the things that made me excited and also happy for um, Canuck and, and Judith the other day is uh, he posted on his Instagram of somebody who had actually moved into the neighborhood really because of them. They're like, they're like, me and my wife bought the ho- our property here and we want to farm too. You're the farmer who lives around the corner, right? <laughs> like, or you're the farmer who lives in this neighborhood, right? Every, far- every community needs a farmer, so it doesn't matter if you're in a rural setting or in a city setting. There should be farmers, right? Um, the thing that I also think about why I, or successful models that I see around the type of farming that I like and appreciate they're like in the most desolate areas. Like one of the, my favorite farms, and I can't remember the name of it, it's just a, a husband and wife. They live in Alaska. They're super remote. They have to, t- they have to time the tides to get off their little um, cove, mm-hmm. and they sell at their far- farmer's market once a week. Mm-hmm. 
or sometimes they don't because the tide's too high and it would be deathly for them to get out. And they don't get a lot of visitors because, well, you got to take a plane and a boat and the tide, you know, time the tides to get to them. But their endeavor is honest and 100% off the grid. And at the same time, they're farmers and they provide a benefit to their community because they sell what they grow to at a local farmer's market, the only local farmer's market, right? And because they do that, they're integrated into the community. And so I think when you start to look at doing things beyond monetary value, that sure, they may not be rich in terms of uh, money in their bank account, but the value um, and the labor and the honesty that they live their life in, as well as the relational benefit, as well as the institutional knowledge that they provide to their community, can you really measure that? Um, and so the more people that you have leaning into those types of things, I think is important, especially um, in this time. And I think when you go back to the whole climate change um, challenge, we need more resilient communities. And so like, if you didn't have power for, th for however many time, how long, mm -hmm. or um, you know, everything shut down, what would you do? What would your role be? If we literally had to go back to a village model for, for two weeks to three months, could you do it? Mm -hmm. And what role would you be providing to your community? Mm -hmm. um, and if, you, if it, the answer is nothing, <laughs> maybe you should rethink your life <laughs> because you know, maybe there's a lot of things that we're not, that we're spending our time doing that have no value. So what really has value? And so that's why I question that um, in terms of big and small farm is how are you defining value and where is that value coming from? Going um, into that more, I think something that I have found personally very striking about every time I talk with you, um, your I think your creativity and pragmatism and also big ideas around bringing these worlds of money and business and value and farming into conversation with one another. Um, for me, there's a, a depth and almost a spiritual sense in how you approach um, creating value in your own life. And I was wondering if you could just talk more about, about that. So, so my religious background is Christian. Um, I grew up pretty much in all different types of Christian churches. So I feel like I'm very well versed, right? It's like, you know, Catholic, Lutheran, Baptist, Southern Baptist, Pentecostal, um, you know, non-denominational, all of it, right? Um, but because of that, because of that deep, like, washing of that, there's a consistency that I see throughout my life to where from a very young age it was important I knew that it was important for me to pray I knew that it was important for me to talk to God um, so in the evening um, you know I would always as a child I would always like look out my bedroom window and like look at the moon and pray that was my ritual um, and being outside and singing you know like I, you know you, we, we forget to do it now, but, like, as a kid, I did that a lot. And I thought it was about, I, w I called it uh, my Indian language. <laughs> I don't know. But that's what I thought it was, um, where I would just sing random words, right? I would sing whatever it is that I wanted to sing, 
you know, at that time. Um, that create like that creativity and that um, innocence when I'm farming, I have that same feeling. Like I ha I can kind of tap back into that to where I don't have to take what I'm doing so seriously. And I get to see like really beautiful things like, you know, when you start farming early in the morning, like you see bugs sleeping, <laughs> you know what I mean? Which I think is like the most adorable thing. I love bugs, honestly, I really do. I'll see like bees sleeping inside flowers or like, you know, beetles curled up or whatever. And I think it's great, I think it's amazing. Um, and I thought, wow, they're sleeping, you know what I mean? And that aspect of it makes me have that warm feeling and that heart feeling of thinking, wow, um, there's so many amazing little things and there's so many things that um, I can't put words to, you know, I can't necessarily describe what the feeling is or what it's doing for me, but I know right now I, no I needed to see that right or I got to see that right like you know when a hummingbird flies in and kind of like drifts longer than you expect because they like dart in and they dart out but they're just like chilling there with you you're like whoa like they don't even know I'm here or maybe like maybe they do but they're okay with it and that's cool you know um all of that if you're paying attention um I'm not I don't care how much time I'm spending doing something I mean I'm diligent about my work but I get these little gifts along the way. And when I think about value and when I think about my time and when I think about what I'm connected to, um, it gives me a sense of knowing that I'm not in control of the process. There's things that I can be responsible for. And, in, and mostly that comes down to being responsible for my thoughts and my emotions and being in, intentional. Um, but the, the bigger playing field, um, it, you know, like when it comes to farming, I can't control when it rains. I can't control how much it rains. I can't control when the wind comes. Um, I can't control what seeds are going to sprout and which ones aren't. I can't control um, if we get a hot snap or a cold snap, whatever. There's so many things that it makes me think about um, when you move through this world and little things happen to you like your car breaking down or losing your job or a family member passing away or a friend passing away you know I think you want to go oh my god why me you know and I feel like there's so many times in my life like I feel like I've experienced an exorbitant amount of stress at the age of 29 you know um you know I was raised by my grandparents, experienced a lot of abuse as a child, um, single mom, you know, random guys coming into the house, they would bring trauma and abuse, and then you get into your adulthood and you think it's going to slow down, and you think there's going to be consistency for you, but again, you know, the day-to-day -day life of, you know, having your car break down, losing your job, some, you know, your relationship not working out, um, having an argument with somebody all of those stressors really make you question, is there anything bigger out there looking after me, right? And I think the only thing that has given me peace, and as I have really, I think, more so stepped into myself over the last four years and really kind of accelerated growth, I would say, in the last two, it's the asking and 
asking for peace, asking for, I want to be unshaken by things. And that doesn't mean that it's always true, but coming back to that and requesting that um, because it's a practice of being able to separate who is truly Ruby, who should be, who's at peace, blissfully at peace. Your true self should bliss, right? Um, because nothing else struggles, right? The bees don't struggle, the flowers don't struggle, nothing in nature is struggling. They're just, they just are. So if that's a part of me and who I am tr intri intrinsically designed to be, then my perpetual state should be bliss. Okay, but there's all these other things that take it away. <laughs> um, how do I get stop letting it take it take it away from me? And really, it's I think observation and taking that third person look. That if you can move yourself out of your feelings and ask yourself those questions: Why am I feeling this right now? What is coming up for me? What do I feel in my body? All those types of things. Ground yourself, and then you're able to not you know, ask the existential question of God, why are you doing this to me? But what can I learn from this? And what is being revealed now? And what is true for me now, right? What makes me angry now isn't what made me angry eight years ago. But why is what is making me angry now true? Um, and I think asking yourselves those internal questions is what gives you whatever your um, divine or God is, it gives you that conversation with him or her, whatever. The way I experience you is um, kind of, even in the way that you talk about First Mother Farms as many iterations, um, I, I really respect kind of the creative energy that, that is continually transforming and, and taking shape, um, kind of that experimental process that you're talking about um without necessarily going into the details of your business plan or you know like the, the concrete maybe um I'm just curious like what with your work with First Mother Farms and you recently um released a, a collection of poems called Unsettled um I guess what is what are some elements of the the um the dream or the motivation of, of what you hope to create and manifest in this world. Um, you've spoken a little bit before about kind of creating healing spaces. And so just kind of um, what is the desire that's driving your work? Yeah. Um, so what I envision right now or what I see as a, as a potential is um, – I want to create spaces, you know, wherever I go that does a couple different things, right? It can, it does and can provide a environmental benefit, right? You know, you know, beautiful flowers and um, habitat for bees and native insects and things like that. Um, it's also a platform for education, all of those types of things. But it's also a reminder and a space as a mental check-in, right? So one of the things that I kind of struggle with and think about is when do we ever learn how to take care of our mental health? There's no unit on this in school. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it doesn't exist. 
you struggle. We struggle so much because I feel like we don't learn these tools. We we are not taught. We are we are taught so much about our body, um, and food, and you know, and yeah, we're lacking in those things. But we don't talk about our mind as a part of our body, and our emotions and our thoughts as a result of that, and also how those thoughts impact how we show up in our life, and as a result of that how we live our life right so the stretch for me is you know creating spaces that of, of beauty that are random little pockets of flowers or native plants or healing plants but also to almost make a public art project out of it to where you know there's a sign that kind of gives you these lessons around mental health um you know noticing how you feel, deep breathing, um, giving you prompts to notice the colors of the flowers or what is happening in the environment as a way to just institutionalize, ingrain some type of knowledge around breathing and breath. I mean, it's it's amazing to me, um, you know, I do this when I go into big meetings, if I have a say in kind of changing the environment around the meeting, I will ask people to take a pause before the meeting and have everyone take three deep breaths before starting the meeting so that everyone can sync up. We take, we, we, we utilize a lot of our time just rushing from moment to moment, not really allowing ourselves to rest. And a lot of our problems for our mind come from not having rest and so um, I really want to utilize being a farmer in First Mother Farms as a tool or a method to merge all these concepts that I think are really interesting food farming mental health um, restfulness yoga and just find intersections between those things and do and spin up creative ideas right so like this year what I want to do is okay so last year I spent time just doing presentations to high school girls right talking about my story giving them a bomb talking about the process of how I create my bomb just talking about self-care self-love right um great love to do some more deep like you know, girls camps around that, you know, taking girls out into the wilderness, teaching them how to camp, you know, having them have that ruggedness aspect to their life. Um, but merging that with the, this deep self care, which I think is a really interesting, um, intersection there. Um, that's something that I'm interested in, in piloting. And then this year, what I want to do is um, all the bombs that I sell this year um, and next year, I just want to use that money as a fund to create these little pop-up gardens that I'm talking about. Like, so I want to do some guerrilla gardening around, um, you know, picking native plants like the milkweed and yarrow and mugwort and just planting them. And like I said, you know, create a little sign that just says, you know, pause here and take three deep breaths, you know. And create a map out of that and, you know, give it, you know, talk about my process, develop a little six pager, whatever it is on my process and how I do it, how much it costs, what the plants are, how to establish it and whatnot. And 
publish it so that, you know, if other people want to take it on as a project, they can. And I think that's one of the things that I, I value and that I care about is that I care about my ideas spreading. So I want to give stuff away for free or like low barrier because if it resonates with you and you're, you're another crazy <laughs> like me and you want to do it, do it, you know? And sometimes maybe you just need to have a model and you kind of need to have a plan written out for you to, for you to visualize it. Great. Do it. Um, and so that's something that I want to do. Um, and my creative idea or hack around promoting it is I'm just going to create random little boxes um, with my bombs in them, kind of like a little free library or whatever, with a little thing that says, you know, save the bees, you know, First Mother Farms is, you know, fundraising money um, to create um, pollinator, you know, pop-up pollinator gardens, you know, whatever you can donate, great, and have it, you know, um, like Venmo, and then just use those funds to buy plants. And so I'm not making any money off of it, obviously, but I'm making money to do something else, which I love, right? So, um, you know, my question would be like, sure, I may not be able to come out of pocket the 200 or $500 to plant these little things around, around about, but, um, you know, I could fundraise that $500 and then invite people to come out and plant them with me and then tell them how I do it. And then if they want to spend their money to do the same thing, they can too. Um, and so then you could have more of these things coming up um, and, you know, have like printable designs and things like that for the signs. And then like guerrilla style, whoever wants to put it up, they can, you know. And I think that's the way I'm really interested in culture change and how do you go about changing culture. And I think it comes down to thinking creatively and being willing to take the risk on changing the culture instead of assuming that it's fixed because it's not um and it was put there by somebody and so the somebody could be you <laughs> and and if you want it to be you then you should you know and if it's something weird that's great you know so that's what um I'm excited to do this next year and so I spend time thinking about how to make it and where to plan it and where to start. Ruby, as we wrap up um, our conversation today, I want to go back to the very beginning where you talked about how farming and relationship to the land was something intrinsic within you and that it was a process to really claim that and um, to, to name that as a part of your identity. And I'm wondering just for whoever might be listening, whether it's farming or whether it's something else, but just um, if there was something along the way that helped make that shift for you or help inspire um, your own your own becoming into this really claiming what is valuable to you and, and doing it like you're saying. Um, yeah, just any words of wisdom that or or love or support that you want to share with with others. So one of the things about my my story and my life is like I I haven't I didn't meet my biological dad until I was 27, and it was right after my grandma and my dad passed away. They're my step, my, you know, on my sister's side, their biological um, grandmother and dad, but they had passed away in a car accident. And 
this prompted this existential crisis of around, you know, my mom's loss in drug addiction. I, I don't know if I'm ever going to see her again. Um, my grandma and my dad just passed away in a car accident. What the fuck? You know, that is one of those moments, right? It's like, why, uh, why am I experiencing this, right? It seems so extreme. Um, and I look around and I just really feel like nobody else is experiencing these types of extremes. And so you feel like, are you there, God? You know, and I remember sitting in my van and I don't even know what I was looking at or why, but I was just crying about the whole situation. And I was just thinking, you know what, God, I'm mad at you. <laughs> and if if you're real and you're looking out for me and if this is for my betterment, the one thing you could do for me right now, which I don't often do this, you know, they talk about not making God like a genie. Well, this was my genie moment. I said, if you're real, <laughs> God damn it. Um, I'm going to ask for this one thing and it's going to be the one thing that you could do for me that I will know that it's real because it's never happened. I'm going to look for my dad right now and I am going to find my biological dad because I had looked for him before you know on social media you know periodically like, it, it, you know I'm I'm a millennial kid but like a late millennial kid so like the internet wasn't good until like you know <laughs> I don't know like it hasn't really been that long it feels like it's been around forever but it's really not so you know I was on dial up with the green screen and everything maybe thinking the machine was gonna find him <laughs> but that didn't happen obviously um and swear to god I look on Facebook, I see a Lance Martinez, okay, and my dad has a unique name, his name's Lancelot, which is not a lot of Lancelots, right? Lancelot Martinez, and I'm like, all right, okay, he has a, a Facebook profile, but there's no photo, it's private, okay, I'm going to friend request him. So there's that. Okay, well, LinkedIn, now I'm going to go on LinkedIn, and I'm going to look him up. Boom, profile picture right there, and I look at, I've never seen him in my life. And I see this guy, and I go, that's my dad. I just knew. Um, so that moment was kind of this reaffirmation that even though there was all this crazy things happening and so much trauma, it's like trauma after trauma after trauma happening, um, you know, the genie God question <laughs> worked. And if it hadn't, you know, I don't know where I would be. But I don't think about that. It did. <laughs> and, and now, it, in a way, it was the catalyst for me to just, you know, not give a fuck. Just to say, it will work out. What I'm doing may seem like I have no path or I, ha I don't know the end. And I don't know where the money is going to come from or how I'm going to do this or how I'm going to do that. In a way, I stopped asking a lot of those questions and just said, what can I do now, right? And so I'm kind of, I'm big on, if it's not perfect, who cares? Ship it. Make it, put it out there. And then iterate, who cares? You know, nobody's even judging that much, you know? And if they are, who cares, you know? It's not worth your time to not, be happy and not to feel full and so I think that's the thing is really 
lean into the discomfort because it will always be uncomfortable. And the more that you do it, I think the first couple of times it feels really uncomfortable. Like another moment I had was when I first launched First Mother Farms, I felt really weird and insecure about doing a GoFundMe and telling my story and being honest about how I got into farming, you know, because it is tied to self-healing and overcoming trauma and overcoming abuse and domestic violence and all this. I wanted to be radically transparent about that and tell that to people. And, and every, I always people are surprised, you know, because, oh, you carry yourself so, so well, you know. No, you know, I, I don't. Maybe I do, but that's not the point. And that shift, like all these things that you ask yourself, should I do this? Should I not do that? Is this the right thing? When you do it, whatever that wild and crazy idea that you have sitting in the back burner of your mind that you may or may not dream about or you or may already be keeping you up at night, that is your inner self telling you to give yourself permission to take a risk. And that's not coming from anywhere else. So when you say yes to it, it just now it's a monster <laughs> in a good way because I can't shut it off. You know, and it, it gets me excited to think about these other ideas to create something because we are intrinsically wired. We were manifested to create. So that thing in your head, it's not about money. It's not about um, whatever. It, whatever society says that it's about, it's not about that. It's about honoring your true self and your authenticity and being raw and wildly human and taking a risk. And I think the more that you take the risk on it, um, the less scary it becomes and then the more addicted you become to the risk taking because now I'm at that place where the risk is exciting and that's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just farming, so <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> Ruby, I'm just so glad that we that I'm able to share a little bit of this conversation with others um, because I feel I feel more empowered to take the risk in my life every time that I meet with you, and so that makes me really excited to hopefully that someone else can hear this too. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us at the table. We would love to hear from you. Let us know what you think by leaving a rating on iTunes, or if you have show ideas, comments, or just want to reach us directly, send us an email at fully.yours.podcast at gmail.com. For today's show notes, our blog, and more, be sure to check us out at fullyyourspodcast.com. Huge thanks to Steve Dry and Catalyst of Harvard Epworth United Methodist Church, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for their generous grant funding of this podcast. Shout out to the talented Joel Adams and Melody Stanford Martin for producing the original song featured in this podcast. Also to Melody for our gorgeous logo design and to our dream team for keeping us grounded and inspired. Until next time, we are fully